So, you know this podcast is called Why Dance Matters. But because it comes from the Royal Academy of Dance, which is engaged in a wide range of different kinds of work, it often is also about why teaching matters, why bodies matter, why art matters. And if we're going deep and why not, it's about why we matter. I'm David Jays, and this conversation could well be about all of those things. I'm talking to one of the most compelling opera singers I've ever seen perform, the American mezzo-soprano Joyce DiDonato. She's had huge and deserved acclaim in the world's great opera houses. She romps through Rossini, she hovers through Handel, and she's also a passionate communicator. Joyce grew up in Kansas, and her original plan was to become a music teacher. Even after she'd committed to a singing career, the breaks came slowly, and only after a whole heap of rejection. This journey seems to have given her a chance to think about why her work is valuable, what it's really for, why it matters. I'm looking forward to asking Joyce about art and activism and about movement. She's a very present, physical performer and is speaking to us on a rare day off from rehearsals for a new production of Handel's Theodora at the Royal Opera in London. She doesn't like to describe herself as a diva, but the temperature always rises when she comes on stage. I'm looking forward to this one. Joyce DiDonato, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Thank you, David. I'm so happy to be here. I'm assuming very good posture, just inspired by the idea that perhaps dancers are listening to me. I feel I've got my turnout going and I'm quite upright. <laughs> I don't know how it, long I'll last, but. <laughs> it is a dancer thing, isn't it? When you, because I mean, you've worked, of course, in opera houses where I guess you might have shared space with dancers and you can always spot a dancer. You from can. a distance, can't you? It's the spine. Always. And I have a love-hate relationship with it, I'll tell you, because I'm in deep admiration and then I, and then I, it just, it's challenging because they highlight how out of alignment I often feel or how schlumpy I feel. And one of the reasons that we really wanted to speak to you is that you are such an engaged physical performer quite apart from an extraordinary musical performer and a dramatic performer, but physicality seems really an important part of what you bring to performance. Is that what it feels like to you? Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. In all sincerity, I mean, I love music and I love movement and I love theatre and opera is certainly the, the combination of all of those high art forms. I'm very hyper aware that opera can be one of the most glorious, memorable experiences that somebody can have. And it can also be one of the most dreadful, awful, stupid experiences. <laughs> <laughs> and I've experienced both as an audience member. And so I, I have a huge fear of looking stupid and wasting people's time and money 
And so I've always, from the very beginning, it's never made sense to me to walk on stage and just sing while we're supposedly in this heightened state of passion and drama and theater. I've thought the only way I have in good conscience, I can can really justify my being here and people spending money to come, is I want to give them an extraordinary, unforgettable experience, which means I have to present my character, my role, my situation with every cell of my body, my mind, my heart, my voice, my soul. So I want people to be able to completely forget that I'm singing or that I'm Joyce Di Donato, but I want them to see me as the character before them. And that means having command of myself physically as well as vocally. And what does that mean in terms of how exhausting a physical act singing opera is? When you come off stage after one of those epic four-hour Handel operas, which are one of your specialities, what, what does that feel like? The really demanding roles feel like I've run a marathon. And it's, it, there's recovery time for sure that is involved and that the body and the voice will demand. This happens also in the ballet. And this is very fresh in my mind because we were just at Romeo and Juliet last night at the opera house. Oh, um, wow. I should have full disclosure, actually. My wonderful partner is from Argentina and he's a ballet dancer, trained classical ballet and has done modern dance and contemporary dance, etc. So I have a huge admiration <laughs> and, and glimmer of an understanding of what the world of dance is for, for dancers. And I'm just really in amazement. We don't quite do the, the physical acrobatics and ballet dancers, but there's an energetic force that comes through holding your energy and your singing and the physicality of these roles over the course of a three or four hour evening. And it really is the energy level is what is the most draining part of it. But it requires real stamina and a stamina that has to be built, you know, certainly over the years, but in each case with a new opera through the rehearsal process. And it's been actually fascinating to come back from the pandemic where I can still sing and study in the privacy of my own space, but you can't replicate what it is to give that energy to an audience. You know, I have to be really disciplined about building that stamina back up. Oh, right. So just like the athletes, like, like the dancers who've come back after that enforced hiatus, you've had to do that sort of work as well. Absolutely. And the missing link is that you can't replicate the energy of an audience. Sure. We walk out and we're so excited to see an audience again, but then there's this immense rush of adrenaline and then nerves because we've been out of practice and two years is a long time, a long time. And, yeah. and so, you know, is it still there and how has it changed and where's my emotional state? So there's been a lot at play in terms of coming back in front of an audience. But I have to say the overwhelming sensation is one of gratitude and having missed it a lot. Joyce, we plunged immediately into the middle. <laughs> Maybe we should go back to the beginning. Because you grew up in Kansas. You were, I think, the sixth of seven children. And I'm always intrigued by large families. 
if you're not the the eldest, if you're not the baby, is it easy to get lost in the mix of a large family? Do you have to work a bit harder to sort of establish your identity? Maybe that's where my vocal production came from. <laughs> Please pass the potatoes. Uh, <laughs> that's I possible. I want to believe it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is one of the really fascinating things that I've thought about over the years is that it's one thing to say, oh, right, I come from a family with seven kids. But the truth is my family is radically different from my older sister and my younger brother and my older brother. Each right. one of us, wherever you are in the food chain of siblings, <laughs> is that your experience of that family is very different. It's very different to be in the same family but have six younger siblings. And in my case, I had five older and one younger. Yeah. It was certainly by the time myself and my younger brother came around, my parents were pretty tired. <laughs> they were pretty tired. And, you know, we both interpreted that in different ways. I had a strong sense of independence from the beginning and a strong sense of ensemble because right. it was never, ever all about me or any one of us. We had to function within the machinery of a lot of things happening and different dramas and different needs and different wonderful experiences. And yeah, it, and, and I, without question, I know that it had a, a big shaping on me. I grew up in the Midwest in a suburban town outside of Kansas City, but we really struggled with money. And it was a very good upbringing and there was stability and security, but I had to start working at the age of 13 to help contribute to the household. And, right. you know, if I wanted a new pair of shoes, it had to come from my earnings. There was nothing left at the end of the month from my parents. And so I had a really strong work ethic built in right from the very beginning. I had a strong sense of anything you want to do. It requires hard work and dedication and discipline. Those are all things that the dance world knows very well. <laughs> and that was really ingrained in me from the very beginning, you know, if you want to go to college, you have to find a way to pay for it. So that was on my mind from the time I was 10, 11 years old, watching my older sisters wait tables and pay their way through college as well. Right. And before you committed to singing, of course, the plan, I think, was to become a music teacher. We're very interested in this because the Royal Academy of Dance, most of the members are dance teachers. Mm. And so I wanted to, to ask you a bit about that, because clearly I can imagine you'd be a natural teacher because you're very warm, you really enjoy communicating, you like to talk about the things that are, are really important to you. But would that have satisfied you, do you think, if that had been the path you'd followed? This was a real source of struggle for me because a big topic of conversation around our dinner table constantly was about vocation. And what is your path that way? And that was another. And right. I took that really seriously when I was growing up. But I've always thought there was a lot of merit in the idea of service and vocation, how you're serving the world that you're a part of. And that really combined with this extraordinary explosion and discovery of music in my life. I really, in a way, consider that my first language. 
and a primal language for me. I didn't know how to express myself when I was a teenager, but music answered all the questions for me and it gave me this incredible outlet. And I'm sure the dancers listening, they went to expression of the body and that gave them such a powerful outlet to express their inner essence. And that was what music was for me and continues to be. And I wanted to give that experience to other people. And I thought it was a really noble path to go towards teaching. And I had a great high school choral teacher that just lit my world up and opened all kinds of doors that I didn't know were even there. And I thought, I want to do that for kids. Yeah, I'm going to be the cool high school teacher. And (laughs) uh, Yeah, I'm going to, you know, I grew up watching Fame, the television show, right? Oh, (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's, that was my dream. And I wanted to be those teachers. I finished my degree at Wichita State University. But at the same time, trying to pay my way through college, I enrolled in the opera because I got some extra scholarship money to be in the opera chorus. And I wasn't prepared for how that really upset my apple cart of plans. You know, (laughs) I just fell in love with the stage. It felt like home and it felt like the one place where I knew how to be. And I didn't have to think about it. I knew it. And I was really struggling because the stage felt super selfish because I really loved being there. And I thought, well, it must be bad then. If it feels good, (laughs) it must be bad. And I struggled. And and I was doing student teaching at the time in quite poor districts, actually, in, in Wichita, Kansas. There was a lot of difficulties, even from first grade. You know, there were kids that were clearly suffering abuse. And there was so much weighing in those classrooms. And the kids were so hungry for guidance and answers. And I thought, oh, this is where I need to be. This is where I should be because there's such a huge need for great teaching, for great mentorship and guidance. There's so many kids starving for that. And it's not being met in other outlets or even in their home oftentimes. And I went to my dad and I said, I'm stuck here because I feel such a pull to the stage, but I feel like the noble thing and the thing I should do is go into the classroom. He unlocked this for me in a really generous way. And he said, you know, Joyce, there's more than one way to educate people and to communicate and to reach them and to touch them. And that was really the key to give myself permission to fly onto the stage without looking back, but with a purpose behind it. You know, I've never sought stardom. I've never cared about the spotlight, even though I I always do know how to find my light on the stage, but (laughs) (laughs) that's important. But that's that's never been my driving force at all. It's been, I, I see such a need for, I mean, I don't mean to sound grandiose, but there's such a, a need in humanity to mm-hmm. touch that primal part in people, the heart and the thing that makes us human and the thing that makes us laugh and cry and want to love more and want to figure out how to get more love. All of that stuff that opera taps into, that dance taps into, yeah. that's been my driving force. And it does come from that sense of vocation. 
And the extraordinary thing is that along the way, teaching opportunities have arisen through masterclasses and speeches and things, and even a podcast like this. It's a chance to reach out to people. And sure. the effect is, of course, probably I've reached more people in this path than I would have ever being in Wichita, Kansas at an elementary school. Not to denigrate that or downplay it, but I know that I've had the chance to reach millions of people in this path. Another of the contrasts between a singer's career and a dancer's career is that a dancer has to be well on the way to being established by the age of 20. And for a singer and for you, it came quite a bit later. There could be a whole podcast series called The Early Disappointments of Joyce Di Donato. (laughs) And it would be (laughs) a real emotional roller coaster of audition rejections and harsh judgments at competitions. And, you know, you've kind of weathered all of that. And I thank God those were uh, there. That's who formed me. I mean, that's what kept pointing out what I needed to work on. I wouldn't trade those experiences as devastating as they were at the time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. That was what I was going to ask, really, was how did you persevere? And how did, you know, the teachers who said harsh things to you, but wanted you to carry on and rebuild your technique and start again? How did you all know that there was something there that was valuable and worth persevering with? I would actually be interested to have this conversation you know, within an established dancer as well, that there are many similarities between the dance world, especially the classical dance and classical singing opera, in that the technical requirements are so huge and constant, right? You never arrive as a ballet dancer or as an opera singer. You have to keep honing and keep refining and keep pushing to go to find more freedom so that your expressive potential just has no limit. That's the goal, I think, for our training. And it takes a lot of technical work, and I, I still study with teachers, and I still continue to work on it. But the real battle, once you start to work, once you're out of the, the conservatory or the academy, uh, is mental. And it's the Mm -hmm. mental battle that is you're battling yourself inside. And you can be your best weapon and your best um, destructive force. (laughs) (laughs) And and that that has been, I think, where my real work has been. And it's it's what I credit for longevity in my career is that when the hits come and the disappointments or the bad performance or the rejection or the harsh critic, when those things come, I think how you weather it and how you approach it is everything. The first hit is always emotional. And there's tears or there's, how dare they say, what the hell? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of curse words that come out. (laughs) Quite emotional. And then... And then I think, wait a second, okay, let's approach this like a CEO of a global company. Let's actually really dissect what is happening. Why would the critics say that? I mean, are they really that much of a masochist? (laughs) Or is there a grain of truth in it? 
I've gotten pretty good at reading reviews or critiques and I can say, okay, there's clearly an agenda here or they clearly come from that school of thinking. I get it. It's nothing personal, but their taste is this. And I can decipher those things now pretty well. But I did a role a few years ago at the Met in New York and I'd had a really good run for a while of exemplary critiques. And these were not exactly exemplary, but they weren't quite trashing. But there was a consistent eh, about the reception to my role. And it was over right. four, five, six different publications. And, you know, you have to look at that and say, huh, you can't just dismiss them and say, well, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, which feels, <laughs> feels very good to say. Um, yeah. But, you know, you have to look at that and say, okay, wait a second, what's going on? Why did this miss? In the early rejections that you're talking about, you know, I had a general director of a company that ended up really being a huge supporter of mine, but his first impression was not much talent. Three Ooh. words with a period at the end of it. I saw it in black and white. And it just shattered oh me. And my way through that was after the emotional hit was to say, okay, where's that coming from? And what's blocking me from all of the things and all the expressive force that I feel within me? Why is that not arriving out there? Do I need more technical work? Do I need something of the personal element to release to free myself physically or emotionally so that what I feel inside can arrive unhindered to the audience, to the listener. And they may still not like it, but I don't want them to say not much talent or another critique I got was not much to say as an artist. She doesn't have much to say as an artist. And I was like, I don't ever want anybody to say that again. They may not agree with what I'm saying, or they might think it's too much or misguided. I think that's death as an artist to come out and go, eh, it was kind of generic. They didn't really have much to offer. And I thought that I don't ever want to have happen again. And so a lot of the work that I did, besides continual technical work to bring more freedom to my singing, was personal work. What's that fear level that's keeping me from really unleashing myself on stage? What's that mental block or what's that insecurity that is putting my performance inward, keeping it in for myself because I'm scared of if it goes out, what people are going to say? How do I unleash that blockage? And that's the kind of work that I did. That's why I say I welcomed those things because it took me to another level. It it broke down some of the brick wall that I had constructed to keep myself safe as a performer. Yeah. But safe doesn't work on the stage. It just doesn't work. It's quite difficult to have to be that vulnerable as well, though, especially in front of 2,000 people <laughs> and an orchestra, to kind of open yourself up to that experience and keep yourself open. I guess you have to have to take quite good care of yourself. In a lot of ways. And the first weapon <laughs> that I can employ with that is if I feel solid technically and if I feel prepared in my music and the technical demands of the music, without that foundation, I can't open myself 
because I've got to know that my voice is going to function in the way I want to employ it. And that takes a lot of technical work. But then that mental barrier, it becomes about allowing that vulnerability. But we all know when we sit in the audience and we see a very technically accomplished but protected performance, it doesn't lift us to our feet. It doesn't make us breathless. So, for example, last night at the Royal Opera Ballet, I see Natalia Osipova as Juliet. And this isn't, I don't think it's, it's not the most demanding role for a female dancer in my definite inexpertise about it, but it's not quite Giselle or Swan Lake. There's, it's a little bit more male-dominated ballet. And yeah. the moments to shine, she does some exquisite dancing, but so much of it is about the acting. And she, oh my God, I didn't breathe for the entirety of the bedroom act when she actually drops the vial of poison and the way she almost like a, a, a broken, broken woman, torn between, girl really, torn between everything. What she did physically wasn't technique. It was the only way that drama and emotion could be expressed because she was so open and of course so technically proficient. But what happened was she drew the entire audience into her emotional hurricane. (laughs) And it was obvious that it had to be expressed physically the way she wasn't doing it. I wasn't aware of her dancing. I was aware of her total torment in that moment and her battle with the poison and her battle with the family and her love for Romeo. And it was so completely committed and strong and vulnerable at the same time. It was masterful to witness. And it, I think it rarely happens, that combination of artists who is so proficient and the mechanism of the body and the technique are completely at their disposal. But at the same time, she makes a pact with the audience right from the first bar, come here with me. Yeah. Come here with me. I'm going to go there and I need you to come with me. And it's this energetic force that we, of course, it's where we all want to go, but it means we have to also suspend judgment in a way. You know, it's dangerous for a, the ballet and the opera. You know, it's such passionate supporters that it's easy to become the observer rather than the receiver in the audience. And to have our little pen and paper and go, well, she didn't quite do it as well as she did in the, you know, in Paris when she blah, 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 or that's not the way Collis blah, 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 or that's not the way, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. And we become the scorecard. Yes. Yeah. And I understand it, but yeah. it means that the, we as an audience member, we also have to come with a vulnerability. And we have to suspend our expectation as hard as that is and say, okay, I'm going to receive what you give tonight, whatever it is. And we on the stage, 
We also feel that when the audience is saying, take us there, please take us there. There becomes this trust rainbow <laughs> that goes <laughs> from the stage to the audience, that those beautiful domes that are in so many of our theaters, the, the performer is saying, can I trust you? And can you trust me to take you there? And the audience goes, yeah, you can trust us, but can we trust you to give everything that you have? We'll keep it a safe space. And it becomes this beautiful dance, really, between the stage and the audience. And I don't know why it happens and sometimes why it doesn't. It's sort of that mystical moment that happens on the stage and in those nights that people say, I was there for that night. Yes. It's what we all want. It's why we all keep coming back to the theater. But what I love about it is that it involves a certain amount of trust that, you know, I mean, not to go into a whole humanitarian topic, but, you know, mm -hmm. trust is lacking right now in our world. And it's why I think the theater is such a vital and urgent and imperative element of our society right now is that it it invites trust still and there is a wonderful and quite extensive section of your very classy website which is about activism and you do outreach work in prisons. You've worked with refugee children. Why is that strand of work so important to you? I've thought a lot about this. I grew up in the 80s. I'm such a child of the 80s and the 90s. And wow, we had it pretty good, all things considered. At yeah. least, you know, in the Western world, which was my upbringing, we had it pretty good and <laughs> the wall came down and the cold war ended and kumbaya <laughs> we had it all figured out right that yeah. was my sensation anyway it's like wow we've got it all figured out and then boom we didn't and especially the last 10 years it's just more and more of our faults as humanity have come to the surface and are more visible than ever before and that having been said, again, returning to Romeo and Juliet, right? We're still, yeah. it's nothing new under the sun, of course. This is what we do as humanity. You know, we just kill each other and move on and get a little bit of enlightenment and then go back to war and then a little bit of enlightenment, a little bit more <laughs> war. It's what we do. But yeah. I, I look at the world around me and I don't like a lot of what I see. And I'm inspired deeply by people that have chosen peace and love and humanity. One of the opera roles that has had perhaps the greatest impact on me is singing the character of Sister Helen Prejean, who's a real life nun. Yes. And she wrote the, the book, which the movie is based on, Dead Man Walking. It's also an opera. And it had a huge impact on me because this is a really fierce and passionate woman the love story is not one of Traviata and Butterfly where the, <laughs> the soprano dies at the end for the tenor, but it's a real love story of a nun who went in because of a letter that a man on death row wrote to her 
and said, would you come talk to me? And she did. And she became his spiritual advisor on death row in Louisiana. And she took him through to his execution. And here's the love story part of it. His name was Patrick Saunier. And they established a very close relationship. And a week or two before his execution, he said to her, Sister, when they do this thing to me, I don't want you in the room. The one person that was his lifeline, really, at the most (laughs) unimaginable moment of his life, he released her and said, I don't want you to be there because... I don't want you to live with that for the rest of your life. I don't know that I've ever heard of a greater act of love. And she in turn turned to him and said, Patrick, when they do this thing to you, I want you to look at me and I will be the face of love for you. And she went with him into the death chamber and stayed with him until the state took his life and she was the face of love for him. And she walked out She vomited, and then she said, I have a mission now, and she's lived this life. So I don't know how you tell that story and not emerge changed from it or witness the story in the opera house and not come out changed. And so when I had the chance to go into a prison, I said yes, (laughs) because partly (laughs) because I was like, well, I can't not do it. I mean, <laughs> she did it. I okay. I guess I have to. And this is, you know, we need those kind of leaders that pull us to a higher version of ourselves, a better version of ourselves, which is yeah. ultimately what we all want to be. It's why yeah. we're here. And so I look at these examples in the world, and I, in my life, and in many lives of people that have generously shared how music has been with them at their lowest moments. It's literally pulled them back from the brink of death or destruction or just being lost and and in a state of despair. Music has single-handedly brought people back from the brink of despair. And I know the power of it. And I know the power of it to transform people's vision of the world or of themselves. I'm not comfortable with just going on to the opera stage wearing some lovely jewels, singing beautiful music and walking away with my paycheck and go going to an elaborate dinner at the end and feeling good about myself. That's not enough for me because I've taken opera and music into prisons and I've seen men jump to their feet saying they didn't know that that kind of music existed. And I came back 10 months later and one of the men in the music program said, I didn't even know opera existed. And now I have to write one. And he has written an opera called Tabula Rasa, working through a person who has committed murder and has asked for forgiveness, and it's been denied him. And that's his opera. And it is transformative. And it is giving this man a tool to express himself that was not available, made available to him when he was six, seven, eight years old on the streets of gang-infested New York City in the Bronx. And I'm not okay with a world like that where people aren't given an alternative to violence and despair. And I know that music 
is that, is one option for that. And I know that many of the people listening to this went into ballet and into dance because music was that for them. And I think if we've been given that opportunity, we have a responsibility to pass that on to other people and to give them that lifeline. It's the power of theater and the power of storytelling in that when it's taken seriously, it comes to life. And it gives the participant or the viewer, the audience, a safe distance to enter into the emotional world of what's being portrayed without it having to be real. With Dead Man Walking, for example, Sister Helen always says, the power of this piece is that there's safety in the theater. People know it's not real. But when it's done well, at the same time, We've shown 2,000 people in one night what the government won't show behind closed doors is that which is an execution. And people are saying that they're for it or against it without actually knowing what it is. And I think that point of view, that opportunity for empathy is so important and necessary right now because we have a bankruptcy of, of empathy for our our fellow human beings. And that's not political. Joyce, it has been such a privilege, such a pleasure to speak to you. I am going to stop, I promise. But we do have one last question. And it's something I think that we have touched on in various ways through this conversation. But it is the question of the podcast, which is, why does dance matter to you? First of all, Anytime I can get my partner, to, I'm a terrible dancer. That should be said. <laughs> I, have ter- I, have, I have very little balance and, and I'm terrible. And, you know, I tried to do the floss and my 10-year-old stepson <laughs> just looks at me and goes, please, Joyce, just no, no, stop, stop. I'm like, what? It's fun. He goes, no, 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 stop. <laughs> so I'm a terrible dancer, but I love it so much. And I've tangoed in Buenos Aires and I've tried plies at the bar, the ballet bar. And I do cha-cha-cha and I dance silly slow music with my partner. And without fail, this huge smile comes across my face. There's something timeless about it. There's something that you I'm not sure I know how to articulate this exactly, but there's something where you're so fully present and equally outside of yourself at the same time that you can get lost in the music, that it takes you to a place either in the past or above yourself somehow, but you also have to be fully present to really enjoy it. And It's just something because I don't have to be good at it (laughs) the way I have to be a good singer. (laughs) I can be really bad, but I can still give myself permission to just enjoy it. And that feels so good. It's very lovely to be able to end on a place of pure pleasure. So let's do that. Joyce, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 
I love it when it feels like a conversation could just carry on. I didn't get to ask Joyce half the questions I had planned. The generosity of her reflection and responses was a treat to hear. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let us know what you think. I'm at Mr David J's on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters and you can explore its work via our show notes. Our guest today was Joyce DiDonato. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan and our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And she's no diva, but I always listen when our producer, Sarah Miles, has something to say. I'm David Chase. Take care and see you soon.